Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Docapel. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Trinity Klomperens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we're joined yet again by special guest Trinity Klomperens to discuss Jordan Peterson's 2018 book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators. Today we're talking about something I've been looking forward to for a long time. We'll be discussing the psychologist, philosopher, and most talked about man on the internet, Jordan B. Peterson and his book, 12 Rules for Life. So just so you guys know, we all love Jordan B. Peterson here, um, but we all came across to meet him in very different ways. Very so true. hopefully we'll be discussing some of that on, on the podcast today. Hopefully. <laughs> we can say whether we will. Uh, so first of all, before before we talk a little bit more about the book itself, 12, 12 Rules for Life, uh, maybe how we came across it, maybe what its meaning is for all of us. Raymond, I have a question for you. So Jordan Peterson, I have heard... I've been reliably informed, is mostly considered to be a political figure. So he's considered to be more on, on the right wing. Um, but I actually, I have a confession to make. I really haven't ever watched Jordan Peterson's videos or podcasts or anything. Um, I am not familiar with him on the internet. I have only read 12 Rules for Life and the sequel to 12 Rules for Life, Beyond Order. So I actually don't understand why... Someone would consider him to be a political figure. Um, and earlier today, I was reading an article by someone who's, who was comparing Jordan Peterson to Milo Yiannopoulos, who I strongly dislike. Uh, what? And who is a very political figure. Um, I'm, I'm curious why he's thought of as a political figure when, it, to me, it seems like just having read 12 Worlds for Life, really his, his gift and what he really talks about is psychology and and therapy and how to put your own life in order, not so much politics on a broad scale. So what, what do you have to say about that? Well, first of all, I think that if you were to say that to him, he would say, that's exactly what I'm saying and, and say, why am I a political figure? <laughs> and I think that that's important to his main point, actually. Um, but there is a specific reason why he's become at least he's he's entered into the political landscape. Um, but to explain that, we have to go back and explain exactly how Jordan Peterson became this crazy internet phenomenon. So this began back in 2016, actually. And it began, Jordan Peterson was a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. And at that time, there was a bill that was going to be passed called Bill C-16. And that bill was going to enforce people by law to refer to transgender people by their preferred pronouns. Jordan Peterson became famous because he released a video lecture series protesting this. And he became known as the professor against political correctness. Now, it's important to note that from the beginning... Jordan Peterson never intended to be political, and he remains by that stance to this day. When uh, Ben Shapiro asked him, Jordan Peterson, when you are president, what are you going to do? Uh, he says, well, um, his response to that was, well, thank you, but I decline the offer. There, there that was, was my pretty good. impressions right there. <laughs> it sounded a little bit like Kermit the Frog. Okay, well, actually, was, Peterson wait. is... I was just about to say this because someone at my college just the other day was doing a talk and they did a Jordan Peterson impression and I thought they were doing Kermit the Frog. So everyone's laughing and I was like, I don't get it. Why is Kermit the Frog talking about psychology? <laughs> I was so confused. 
It's actually become an internet meme among, among his fans. So if you go on YouTube, you can see Jordan Peterson's lectures superimposed with footage of Kermit the Frog. Oh. And because it, everyone is, says that Jordan Peterson sounds like Kermit the Frog. But anyway. I, I really had not put those two together until I thought <laughs> he was imitating Kermit the Frog and it was actually Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Oh, my word. Anyway, so he's always said that he he doesn't want to get political about this. And the reason why he's become political has to do with his ideas and his ideas about what the West is and what an individual is just happened to come into a crossroad with a law. And one of Peterson's fundamental ideas is... First, that you're an individual and an individual is sovereign and free states are built on free individuals who can speak freely. And he doesn't have a problem with, let's say, restrictions on speech or censorship necessarily. But the law says, this Bill Bill C-16 was saying, you have to say these words. And that's not a restriction on speech, that's compelled speech. And as we're going to talk about later today in this podcast, speech is very important to Peterson, mm-hmm. particularly the things that you say and the things that you say are relevatory about your conscious about who you are. And because a society is made up of individuals, the necessary precondition for a free society is free individuals who can think freely. And if I might add, I kind of think, well, I just think that the entire discussion of why Jordan Peterson is viewed as a political figure we could have for hours. But I think one of the main reasons is that politics aren't even really political anymore. Like they're, they're social, they're moral, they're ethical and everything else, which is everything that he does and everything that he talks about. So it's kind of impossible for the way, at least the way I'm talking about the United States in particular, the way that politics are viewed they, are, they do not have to do with just what the government is doing in terms of like taxation. It really has everything to do with the way that you live your life and whether you have the freedom to say certain things, whether you have freedom of um, what religion you choose, all of that. That's the primary focus, I would say, of politics right now. So it's... Yeah, and I think that even like 10 or 12 years ago, Jordan Peterson certainly would never have been thought of as a conservative or a right-winger, especially by the right wing. In fact, by his own admission, he's described himself as a classical liberal. And he's always espoused the idea that conservatives and liberals need each other. And he looks at that from a psychological point of view. He says conservatism and liberalism is more determined by temperament than it is by anything else. Liberal people tend to be creative and open-minded. Conservative people tend to be industrious. And you need both of those things for a society to run. And so he says things that seem very liberal and things that seem very conservative. I think that because he is directly protesting against what is now the establishment media that's very left-leaning, the left-leaning media is always going to label anyone who opposes them automatically as conservative, ergo, they're the enemy rather than actually paying attention to what he's actually saying. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that most people think that he's a Christian as well, because he says many times that, well, wait, wait, wait. Mm. I, uh, whenever I've talked to you, I've, I've always, I can't help but ask you if, if you believe in God. But I, I feel like we've got 3,000 people sitting here who would really like an answer to this question. You say you believe in God. You have been... No, I say I act as if he exists. You say what? I say I act as if he exists, which is a much more precise claim. One of the most important things you regularly say, you live as if there is a God. Is that correct? Jordan, um, I've actually heard you ask this question um, a number of times, and I don't think I've ever heard you give a definitive answer. Yeah, I don't like the question. So people often ask me, do you believe in God? which I don't, I don't like that question. First of all, it's an attempt to box me in, in a sense. And the reason that it's an attempt to box me in is because the question is asked so that I can be firmly placed on one side of a two, of a binary argument. Well, I think partially because they associate conservatism with 
Christianity that they have to be the same thing somehow. Yes. And so they label him as a conservative. And then because he's conservative, naturally, he also has to be Christian because he has to be part of the religious right when neither of those labels strictly might be correct. But I, th- I think we're going to we'll, we'll get to all that later, too. Yeah, we really hope to answer today that the, the most the most fundamental question that has been plaguing the entire internet world, does Jordan Peterson believe in God? A <laughs> big question. he says that he does. Wait, maybe I'm Well, wrong. does he? Does he, though? Okay, we'll get to that. Um, um, I'm pretty let's talk sure about... he does. Okay, whatever. Fine. Let's talk about the book. Uh, we have nothing to say about the book. This is all we were going to talk. <laughs> okay, yeah, go on. So 12 Rules for Life. When you read the title of this book, the first thing that comes to most people's minds is uh, like this is some kind of seven habits of highly effective people or something like that. So what is this book about? Is it just another self-help book? So on one level, on one level, it is a self-help book, but it's the best kind of self-help book. And I think this is maybe a good place to explain The way that I came to Jordan Peterson, most people, my understanding is that the way that they encounter Jordan Peterson or they come across Jordan Peterson for the first time is they find him on the internet and they watch videos of his and then maybe they go read his books. I was given 12 Rules for Life as a Christmas present and didn't know who he was and had actually no interest in reading the book until quarantine happened. So until March of 2020, when suddenly I found myself living basically alone, uh, doing online school in an apartment by myself. And I started reading the book because I had time. Um, And Jordan Peterson was, for me, my psychologist, like my therapist. (laughs) Um, And he's more or less the person who taught me how to be sort of more of an independent adult at the first point in my life where I was being asked to be an independent adult. Um, And so for me, all of these rules are primarily individual. So they're actually things that I implemented in my life to help me be a more, for lack of a better word, successful, a more um, meaningful person (laughs) who had better goals and had my life more in order, whereas it was more chaotic before. So that's what Jordan Peterson is to me. So I was actually really surprised. I mean, I I mentioned this earlier. I was surprised to hear that he was even a political figure at all, because to me, this book is about how people, individual people, reach their full potential or how they begin to set their lives in order and begin telling themselves the truth and telling other people the truth. Um, So it really, to me, is primarily a work of psychology or even of therapy, Um, but for lots more people than just the individual people that he counsels on a daily basis. So um, that to me is what the book is. It is a self-help book. It's just the best kind of self-help book because it isn't just here are some empirics, here are some practical things that have worked for me and probably will work for other people. They're rules that are practical, but they're practical because they're drawn from universal principles. So I mean, so what are some of the... So what are some of the major themes of the book? So I would pick out three of them. Um, The first major theme, I would say, is the idea that suffering is an integral part of being. So to be a human in the world, you will suffer. And you have two choices faced with that suffering. So you can either withdraw from suffering, and in doing so, you can deny yourself, deny the act of being, or you face your suffering head on and you transform yourself by little sacrifices every day into someone better um, and someone who has more meaning to their life. He really talks about this a lot in the first rule of the book. So the first rule is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And he takes that idea and he really expands it to mean something more than just have good posture, but the idea that you need to face the reality of the world head on. And one of my favorite quotes in the book is at the end of that first rule, where I think he sort of lays out his his manifesto, what he's really going to be saying in the entire rest of the book. And he says, To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. It means deciding to voluntarily transform the chaos of potential into the realities of habitable order. 
It means willingly undertaking the sacrifices necessary to generate a productive and meaningful reality. It means acting to please God, in the ancient language. To stand up straight with your shoulders back means building the ark that protects the world from the flood, guiding your people through the desert after they have escaped tyranny, making your way away from comfortable home and country, and speaking the prophetic word to those who ignore the widows and children. It means shouldering the cross that marks the X, the place where you and being intersect so terribly. Then you may be able to accept the terrible burden of the world and find joy. So that I think is the first big theme. The second big theme is that in order to embark on that project, so in order to face suffering, you have to tell the truth, even when the truth is painful. And uh, the rule, the wording of the rule there is tell the truth or at least don't lie. (laughs) So you tell the truth or at least you don't tell lies. And that's not just with other people, but to yourself. Um, The third theme I think that I would pull out that sort of encapsulates the whole book is that that process, so facing suffering and transforming yourself in doing so, and by doing that, telling the truth, the third big theme I think (coughs) is that the process of shaping yourself requires treating yourself like you are someone you're responsible for helping. So Jordan Peterson points out in the second rule, which is... Uh, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping that people if if their pets are sick and they need to fill a prescription and give medicine to their pet they will do it every day they will never forget to administer medicine to a pet whereas people forget to take their own medicine all the time even if it's life-saving medicine and that's just a statistical fact and so peterson points out that you have shame about yourself and that you actually care less for yourself you act as if you care less for yourself than you act as if you care for other people or even for like your dog or your cat um and that means you have a responsibility to yourself and that sometimes you have to talk to yourself as if you were a child who needs to be coaxed (laughs) to do the things that you need to do in order to put your life in order that you need to treat yourself well um in order to face suffering and that in response to the suffering of life, one of the things you need to do is to limit sometimes your scope of responsibility to a short period of time. So instead of thinking, what am I going to do for the next three months or the next year or the next three years? You think, what can I do right now to set my life a little more in order? What's one small thing I can do to alleviate suffering just a little bit? And that if you keep doing that, that's how you over time set your life in order. So those three ideas that being involves suffering and you need to face it head on. That in order to face suffering, you have to tell the truth to yourself and to others. And that you need to treat yourself with care and respect. I think those are the three big themes that underlie the 12 rules in this book. Wow, that's a lot. I have I know. <laughs> wait, I have so much to say. Are we moving on? I wait. Keep going. Go, 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 go. Okay. So for the first one that you said, um, about how there's suffering and that is just what it is to be human and um and so standing up straight with your shoulders back, that being the first rule. One thing that that always makes me think of and I think is just a a really powerful theme of that theme that you're talking about is that I've always translated it as the rule to be brave. And, And that's because the idea there is not that you live in darkness and you think, oh, well, I have nothing to worry about. Oh, well, you know, even if there's going to be some pain in life, um, I just need to not worry about or not care or... Right, it's not nihilism. Exactly. It's not nothing matters. It's no, things matter a lot. And that's one thing that I think consistently comes through not only the book, but his podcasts, his lectures, all of that, is that nihilism doesn't work because we recognize that we experience so much pain and suffering. And how can you experience pain and suffering if nothing matters to you? So... Instead of living in darkness and thinking, oh, well, I'll just never experience that because I just won't care about it. Instead, it's 
No, I recognize that that is going to happen to me. I am going to suffer, but I am going to stand up straight with my shoulders back anyways. And that always reminds me of the quote from Andrew Clavin's book, The Great Good Thing. I think it's called The Great Good Thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, where he says that sometimes you just have to play in pain. And that's uh. that's the way that you have to live your life. Um, not only is that the best way to live your life in terms of your own benefit, it's, it's the only way to live because you are going to experience pain. You have a few ways to respond to it. And the way to respond to it is not by saying, I'll never be afraid. I'll never experience pain. It's I will, and I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to continue on and get my life in order. And I think this is why Peterson has become such a major phenomenon, because in many ways, he's challenging the current assumptions and cultural zeitgeist of our time by saying this exact thing. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to a news story the other day where they were talking about yet another school shooter, and I couldn't help but pay attention to the way they talked about this school shooter, the way they always talk about school shooters. You know, they talk about him as a threat an entity who needs to be deterred, right? That word, like, what are we going to do that's going to cause the threat to be deterred? Um, and they weren't talking about him like a human being. And they were treating him like there was that he had no reason for doing what he was doing. And Peterson has talked a lot about the psychology of school shooters, particularly in terms of nihilism, because I think that as a psychologist, he really understands why you would go and shoot up a school. A lot of it comes from this resentment and nihilism, which roughly, roughly speaking, as he would like to say, roughly speaking is defined as a contempt for being itself. And what does he mean by a contempt for being? Well, it starts with the having to confront, like you said, the reality that life is suffering, that you're conscious and vulnerable and mortal and you're going to die. And what are you going to do about that? And many people don't have an answer for that, especially in the modern world. They don't have a narrative that's that's meaningful for them. And what's interesting about his language is that he often says things like, you have to submit yourself to the will of God, so to speak. Even here in the quote here, it says, it means acting to please God in the ancient language. Mm. Or he's talked about God as being the highest ideal. So he's very much conscious about staying within the, the realm of psychological language, saying, okay, on the most basic psychological level, you need something that's highest and aim for you to hive that uh, aim that you need to, that you need to, to shoot for. And that aim is going to be something like God. And so he's calling in the Christian narrative saying, I'm not even saying this is true. In fact, he's said, Many times, I'm not arguing for the existence of God. I'm saying this is the best narrative we have that is going to answer the problem of consciousness and human suffering. Well, and I think that so important to that idea and actually related to the idea of talking about a school shooter like as a threat needs to be deterred, talking about them as if they're not human. I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the concept of responsibility is absolutely integral to everything that Jordan Peterson says, um, his whole philosophy. You are responsible for yourself and for your being. And the fact that life means suffering, that being means suffering, doesn't absolve you of the responsibility. And the fact that you might be in pretty dire circumstances and you may not have done anything to deserve those circumstances... Um, you may not be at fault for the situation that you're in, but you are responsible for yourself as a human being. So even if you're not responsible for what happened that puts you in a difficult scenario, your responsibility to yourself 
is to do the best you can within those circumstances. To every day do something that makes your, you, yourself, and the world around you a little bit better. And that's the thing, I think, that isn't, isn't revolutionary, but that changed my life. <laughs> the idea that changing the world and changing myself wasn't a huge task that I was going to accomplish with one big action or that I was going to change in one big moment, that it meant small acts of sacrifice and responsibility. Um, and a, and yeah. a great example of that is Peterson actually, she's, he's very well read. And there's a point where he actually quotes T.S. Eliot in The Cocktail Party. And there's a character in The Cocktail Party named Celia. And she goes up to a psychologist and she says, I want to figure out what's, what's wrong. And I hope the problem is me. And he says, why? She says, because then I can do something about it. And if the problem is not me, that means that there is something wrong with the world itself. And that is much more troubling. Thanks for coming, everybody. This has been a great podcast. <laughs> I'm like, let's just leave it there. That quote ends it all. I mean, are you kidding? Okay, wait, wait, wait. I want to say something really quick about that. Because that's the one lecture that I would listen to, I don't know, like every single time I was drawing or painting or whatever, I just listened to it over and over again. And it's the lecture that he gives about choosing to get better. And Sophie, what you were saying about that not being a one-time sweep, like you, you decide and then just the next day you're all better. And that was actually one of the main things that he says a lot of his patients will think is going to happen. Like if they have a huge problem in their life or they're very depressed and they need to, um, that they need to get their life in order and they think that they will be able to just wake up the next morning and then they just do it. But what he says is every day you, you'll get marginally better, but of course you'll fail because you're a flawed human being and you, you won't even do the schedule that you wanted to do. Um, even, 50%. There's something like that. He says, like, you're not going to be able to do it because you are flawed, but you will get marginally better. Even if it's 0.01% better, that's still on the upward. So um, that that's something that actually continues to encourage me every day is I'll think about that and I'll be like, yes, that's right. As long as you are on the trajectory of getting better, um, that's always a good thing. It's that like, was um, so incoherent, but <laughs> there was my thought. No, yeah, it's like in in Purgatorio, every step on the mount on the on Mount Purgatory, because Mount Purgatory follows a path that goes around a mountain that goes in a spiral, but it goes constantly up. You end up back where you started geographically every time you make a, a circle around the mountain. But every step is going up. And then as long as you're moving forward on Mount Purgatory, you cannot help but get to the top. You cannot help but make it to paradise. Um, and I think that's so important, that the steps are incremental. But as long as they're forward, they're up. <laughs> and what I think is also really interesting about Peterson is that he doesn't really care where he draws his examples from. And I think this is what makes him a very unique intellectual because intellectuals can be kind of snobbish about where they're getting their examples from. But Peterson will take examples from wherever he can get them. And he has this whole 12-part lecture series called Ma Maps of Meaning where he analyzes the movie Pinocchio shot by shot. And he talks about Pinocchio and the Lion King and everything in his book. And he has a whole lecture about um, the very, just that one line at the beginning of Pinocchio, which is Disney's motto, when you wish upon a star, it does not matter who you are. You wouldn't like, they take that, that kind of corny line and think this is like the meaning of life, but he does. <laughs> he, he starts with that and then he goes into like, you know, the third Reich and this is how you don't be a Nazi, <laughs> which is, it's so funny how he just jumps all over the place, but you know, really, really interesting. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the rules specifically, um, because like I said, Peterson has a kind of 
very, he likes to talk in riddles and he likes to use narratives and stories to construct his point rather than stating them explicitly. So why do you think he words some of these rules the way he does? For example, he says, tell the truth, but he doesn't just say, tell the truth. He says, tell the truth or at least don't lie. And then he says, don't do anything to your children that makes you dislike them. That's another rule. It's like, why not just discipline your children? Why would you word it in that way? Or do not interrupt children while they are skateboarding. I thought that was a fun one. And then the very last one, rule 12 is pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. I think one of the main reasons that he words a lot of the rules that way is that he, again, continues to go back to the idea that human beings are always going to do it wrong. <laughs> like, no matter what rule you get, you're not going to be able to do it perfectly. So if you say, tell the truth, always be honest, then, you know, there's some gray area there that people will always take advantage of. But if you add in afterwards, or at least don't actively lie, then it's like, yeah, we're understanding that the bar is very low. Um, and even that, <laughs> even that we won't be able to meet. You'll still lie. But as long as that you can recognize, oh, and this is something that he says that I love, humble yourself enough to recognize where the bar actually is. That is a fully a paraphrase. He does not say that. But it's, it's the idea that you need to be humble enough to recognize that you don't have a high bar. You don't have a high standard for yourself. You actually have a low standard for yourself and you need to set it to a place where you can actually meet it. And I think that that's what he does with his rules. Yeah. I think also all the wor all the rules are worded in such a way that they are concrete, actionable items. They're not abstractions. So something like don't do anything or I think the wording of the rule is don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. If the rule were discipline your children, that would get at the idea. And he could say that, but it's really abstract. If someone says discipline your children, you say, that's what I thought I was doing. Um, I, I was trying to do that, but I guess I'm doing it wrong. And there's so many things that we try to do because we understand in the abstract that it's a good thing. And yet we do it wrong because we don't know how. Um, and the principle... The concrete principle, no matter how you do it, like we might disagree about the uh, some of the nuances of how you do this thing, but at least don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them because that means they're not likable people <laughs> and you are predisposed to love your children. And so if you don't like your children, lots of other people aren't going to and you're not being kind to them by letting them do that thing. And so that's so concrete and something like, don't interrupt children while they're skateboarding. Um, or pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Like, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street, that's the last rule in the book. And he's really talking about how you should take advantage of or take pleasure in the small, concrete, good things that you encounter in your life because those things are also an antidote to suffering. Those things make your life better. Um, but if he just said, stop to smell the roses... Enjoy the small things in life. That That isn't concrete. We still think of that as abstract. But saying something like, at the very least, the first thing you should do when you see a cat on the street, stop and pet it. And if you do that, the other things follow. Uh, you learn to do that in other ways. And you learn to take that concrete action and apply it to other things. So I think that explains a lot of the wording, the way that he words his rules. He wants them to be concrete and actionable and not abstractions. Well, I was going to say that it really spoke to me in a really specific way. I mean, like, for example, clean your room, right? That's his most famous one. Uh, clean your room being the, the act of cleaning a room means more than just cleaning a room. As he would say, the room is you. And so by cleaning the room, you're cleaning up your whole world. And so when you do these little actions, realizing that they have more significance, then your whole life becomes more meaningful as a result of that. And I just know that this is, you know, that first, but the first time these rules came to my mind, especially things like 
not interrupting children while they're skateboarding or pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. I thought that this was kind of glib, right? And, and silly, like he was just trying to get people's attention, right? Um, and it took a while for those rules to kind of sit in my mind for a really long time. And then, you know, uh, you know, just the other day, I'm, you know, this has happened to me where I'm sitting alone, you know, and really in a terrible mood and just, you know, not wanting to, to invite any kind of like positive emotion or thankfulness into my life at all. You know, I'm just not having it at all. And I realize that I'm in that mood and I don't want to get out of it uh, because I'm being stubborn. And then someone comes up to me and says, hey, Raymond, do you want to go for a walk? And my immediate reaction is like, no, I'm in a terrible mood right now. I'm having an awful day. Go away. And then I think of that rule. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. It's like, here's your lifeline. You can get out of this mood. Someone's coming here to help you get out of this mood. You've encountered a cat on the street. (laughs) I've encountered a cat. So it's like, yeah, take the walk, even though you don't feel like it. And that's how you get out. Yeah, I think it also goes back to the idea of marginal increase. Like his whole idea is, even if you don't get the abstract idea or it doesn't stick with you, at least you'll pet a cat when you encounter it on the street. And he's like, well, if I can at least do that, then there has been some benefit to the world and to your soul, which I think is great. So... Let's talk a little bit about Jordan Peterson's philosophy. Now, Peterson cites, like I said, some pretty eclectic sources. He's talked, for example, about like mushroom symbolism and the cross. That's probably his uh, psychological perspective. (laughs) He's a real big fan of Jungian psychology. And in 12 Rules for Life, he has quoted uh, non-canonical scriptures such as the Gospel of Thomas. And so... um, People have praised him for, at least a lot of people from the church and from Christians, for bringing the discussion of Christianity back into the public sphere. But he's also been criticized by those same people for making some questionable theological claims. So what is Jordan Peterson's philosophy? I don't know if I'm the best person to be asking this question. Like I said earlier, a lot of his philosophy in my mind is a primarily practical philosophy. So my understanding is that he's, he considers himself an existentialist. Um, so which, which I think jives with, uh, which is very coherent with his whole idea that what matters is your being and making your being meaningful. Um, and so Things like facing suffering head-on, things like telling the truth, or at least not lying, things like treating yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, changing your life incrementally to make yourself better is a way of making your being better and more meaningful, which I think falls under the umbrella of existentialism. But I'm not actually sure how that applies on a broader scale beyond just existentialism being a highly individual sort of philosophy. Trent, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think I'm actually surprised that you just said Jordan Peterson considers himself an existentialist. Does he say that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, that is surprising to me because I, I mean, my understanding of existentialism has always been that you provide meaning into the world by what you find meaningful which just doesn't seem at all like what he what he says i mean he always seems to say that what you do matters because it matters but but i suppose that he says that in order to benefit you because your life will be better if you find meaning in it so i suppose that that does make sense i don't think that it's i don't think that well, it's also true. we talked well because like trin we talked a little bit earlier about how he says that the narrative of Christianity or the narrative of the Bible is the best narrative that we have and that that's separate from advocating that it's true. Um, I think that maybe shed some light into the fact that he calls himself 
existentialist <laughs> that he uh, says that this narrative we can consider true because it's helpful, but that that's a separate question and more important question than whether or not it's objectively true. I don't know, Raymond, what do you think? Well, I think it's really interesting that Trinity, what you said, that you wouldn't think of him as existentialist. I had a student giving a speech about this precise topic about existentialism, and she gave the definition that you gave. And I think that that's pretty much, that's a pretty common understanding of what existentialism is. And it's not too far off because there's a lot of philosophers in the 20th century that would define it that way. Um, Well, Nietzsche was a precursor to that, but Sartre too. And Sartre wrote Being into Nothingness. And Being into Nothingness, that's a precursor for postmodernism. And what's really interesting is that Jordan Peterson is very clearly a critic of postmodernism, but he defines it, uh, well, he defines it as that all meaning is determined by the relationship between words. There is no meaning outside of that. And it's really interesting that he calls himself an existentialist, but very clearly not a postmodernist, and he wants to make that distinction between the two of them. But I think it makes sense, and in some sense, it's understandable that there's a confusion between the two of them. And I've watched his existentialism lectures, particularly his lecture on Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, and Kierkegaard. Um, I've actually, I've watched that lecture every year for like the past four years. So I've got it in my head pretty pretty down pat. (laughs) But what was really interesting is how he drew, drew all these things together. Uh, these different people together. One of the things that he pointed out is that Nietzsche was deliberately anti-Christian. Dostoevsky Dostoevsky was um, an Orthodox Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christian, and Kierkegaard was a Protestant's Protestant. They're very, very different people. And yet, he says, they're they're all characterized from a philosophical point of view as existentialists. And a lot of it is because of the same reason. So what are some of the characteristics of existentialism? Well, one of them is first that existentialism is the, reali- is the realization that your narrative about the world and objective reality don't match, right? And psychologists, well, he's a psychologist, so he figures that out. He has, has that experience all the time. His clients have this existential crisis where something that they believed all the time turns out to be completely wrong. And that's what happens when you're betrayed, right? The present and the past and the future are no longer accurate. And so one of the things that existentialists believe is that your actions determine what you believe, not what you say. Because your actions, and that's where we get like double think, right? That was George Orwell's term. You can say one thing, but if you're living in some kind of tyrannical regime, you can say one thing and then you act in a totally different way. Um, that's part of the psychological control that a tyrannical regime has. So um, the reason why you can understand existentialism as saying, uh, how did you define it? That, you, that, 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 that your meaning is defined by what you do. Well, in some sense, that's true because... What you do determines how you believe. And in some sense, that's exactly what Jesus said, right? And this is why you could say not all existentialism, existentialists are Christians, but Christians are in some deep sense existentialists because Jesus says, what is the kingdom of heaven like? It is like a man who sees treasure in a field and sells all he has and buys that field, right? He has an existential crisis. Like this is reality, not this. This is not what I should have been storing up my treasures in. And then he goes on and he says, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. It's, it's like, or, or the parable of, of the two sons. How is it? There was a father who had two sons. He asked the first son to do a task and he says, I'll do it. And then he goes and he does not do it. And then the other son says, I will not do it. And then he goes and does it. And Jesus says, I praise the second son more than I do the first. Even though he said he doesn't do it. What is what he actually does reveals that he is a true believer. But I, again, I'm not seeing how that's existentialism. I, I can, I suppose, see and cl- 
you can clarify if I'm wrong here, but the difference that you're saying between existentialism and postmodernism that Jordan Peterson lays out is that postmodernism has to do with parsing of words. Like, one person could say that something means one thing and another person thinks it means something else, and that that's the problem with that. A- am I wrong there? No, is no, no. Is that no, what you're no, saying no, the difference is? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so that makes sense. So if you are confronted with existential reality, so to speak, then the there's more than one potential answer to that realization. So for Kierkegaard, that was a leap of faith, something beyond the rational. For Dostoevsky, it was to embrace the world. That was his stance. For Nietzsche, who wasn't a Christian, it was the Ubermensch. It's power. Someone needs to rise above all the other people and create meaning for everyone. The Superman. For the postmodernists, it's it's fundamentally because there's no ultimate meaning, meaning the response to, oh, because my perceptions of the world are not correct, there's no ultimate meaning. Therefore, the only way we can make meaning is by constructing certain relationships between words and pitting them against each other. So it's this idea against this idea against this idea against this idea, and there's no ultimate idea. So there's more than one potential answer. So let's go. Let, I mean, let's let's go back to the 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 beginning of Peterson's idea. Life is suffering, right? Mm-hmm. I, I realize I'm naked and I and I'm ashamed and I have to realize I'm vulnerable and all that sort of stuff. That's your existential crisis. Being consciousness and consciousness is pain. What do we do about consciousness? Right? It's either, as Sartre said, nothingness, being into nothingness. It's either Buddhism, you annihilate being through asceticism and and destroying, basically eliminating desire, right? So it's eliminating being. Or, as Peterson would say, the solution to consciousness is more consciousness. You embrace suffering. So the existential crisis is the starting point, but it can go in more than one direction. And postmodernism is one of those directions, but it's one of the directions that Peterson rejects, at least if I think if I'm understanding him correctly. And I think if I can add something to that or maybe just put it into different words, the core, I think, of existentialism is that meaning is not does not exist independently of you and your actions that you and your actions what you do and think and say affect meaning and change meaning um and change reality change meaning so your existence in the world and the choices that you make those things all affect the world and affect your existence and the existence of others and affect meaning so i think that's the sense in which peterson is properly termed an existentialist um and someone like uh, Kierkegaard or uh, Dostoevsky, even though they think very differently about how your actions change reality and change meaning, they all have that same fundamental starting point, that you and your actions matter, and that you make a choice one way or the other, and that choice changes things for you and for others. And I think, I think that's sort of the core. That's the core that he's getting at. I have some clips where Peterson talks about his belief of belief in God, which I'm going to play here. So then the question came to me, do I believe in God? And I don't like that question. Well, what do you mean by believe? Is what you believe what you say or what you act out? Let's say you say you do believe in God. Say, I believe in God. It's like, okay, well, that's hypothetically pretty impressive, I would say. It's like you believe that there's a divine power that oversees everything, that is fundamentally ethical, that's watching everything you do, and, um, and you believe that. And so what effect does that have on your behavior, if, if you believe it? Does that mean that you're 
well, are you, full, are you all in on your beliefs? Are you sacrificing everything to this transcendent entity that you proclaim belief in? Have you cleansed yourself of all your sin, let's say? Are you making all the sacrifices that you need to make? Like, have you taken the moat out of your eye? You got to, and I think this is why it's bothered me to answer this question. It's like, what right do I have to say that? To make that claim? I believe in God. Well, what's the claim? Is that the claim that I'm a good person somehow? Because you'd think that if you believed in God, actually, like, like seriously, that you'd be a good person, like, right now. Because, well, <laughs> well, for obvious reasons. You don't casually say, I believe. Because who knows? No one, no one knows, right? We're separated from the infinite by death and ignorance. We don't know. We contend, we wrestle. And I would say that insofar as you're deeply involved in that, like completely involved in that, thoroughly involved in that, then you have the right to say that you believe in God. And since I'm not like that 100% of the time, or even approximating the percent of the time that I would like to be like that, you know, despite my best efforts, then when people ask me, I'm not going to say something virtuous, like, I'm a believer, because there's plenty wrong with me that needs to be fixed before I would dare utter words like that. Thank you. And this is Peterson, several years later after he gave this lecture, um, talking with Christian Orthodox thinker Jonathan Paggio. So, okay, so you can think about Christ from a psychological perspective, and the, the, criti the critic, my critic, this particular critic that I've been reading, said, well, that, that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods. And, of course, people have made that claim in comparative religion, but the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a, there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now you can debate whether or not that's genuine. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't okay. know. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't <laughs> understand it. Like, because I've seen... Sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch. You know, that's Jungian synchronicity. Yeah. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real, like we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world, but the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to, and that seems to me oddly plausible. So does Jordan Peterson believe in God? Well, I think the first thought that I have is that it definitely seems like there's a progression or he's undergoing a progression and while I don't know that I can speak for him or his heart I think that the question that he posed in the first in the first lecture there that we were listening to um the question that he poses about how like what does that mean what does it mean to believe in God and the fact that he approaches it more from a narrative perspective, is this narrative true versus is this a historical objective event? 
or, some sense, or is I think this that's a really... being real, which is what most people think when they're asking that question. Like, does the being right. God exist? And they always emphasize, like, did he create the world? And and as opposed to evolved over millions of years. And he's a Darwinian evolutionist, so he's indifferent to that to that uh, dichotomy. Right. So I think I think what he's struggling with in the first lecture where he's talking about what does that even mean to believe in God, he's thinking about God as an abstraction. And in that sense, how do any of us believe in God? Like God as an abstraction is incredibly difficult to parse out what that even means. So I'm actually kind of with him. Like answering that question is hard and explaining that question is hard when he's talking about it the first time. But what I think is so interesting is that in the Years later, um, when he's talking to Pajot, he isn't—he doesn't say God. He says Christ, and he talks about that being the meeting of a mythological or a an ethereal and narrative world with the objective world. And he didn't talk about Christ in the first lecture. And I think, in some sense, maybe that's. I don't know if he's there yet, but that seems like that's sort of his answer to the question, if believing God is an abstraction, how, how, how would I ever say that I believe in that? And then the answer to that is the person of Christ, because Christ is a true myth. And then it makes sense to me that he would get to that concept through C.S. Lewis, <laughs> um, because C.S. Lewis, I think has some kinship with Jordan Peterson in the the practical way that both of them think about the world and both of them are very concrete thinkers. But I don't know. I think that's probably my best answer to that question. Trin, what do you think? Yeah, that's, it's a lot. I think it makes so much sense that one of his first reactions is practically, what does it look like to believe in God? And practically, how will that affect my actions? Right, because when you hear that question, if you're thinking about the world in the practical way, I think that he does, which is how am I going to get better and how am I going to put my life in order and how am I going to, you know, be a good person the best that I can. Every question that you hear is going to fit into that. And I think that there is always the question of, well, yeah, if I do believe in God, then what? Right? Because that's not a question that you can just hear and then answer and just move on with your day. It has really vast implications. And I think that one of the main issues and why I think I originally had kind of an averse reaction to him saying that he's an existentialist is that he really does believe that life does matter, that other people do matter, and that what you do with your life matters. And that that belief it's i think it would be difficult to hold while saying that there is there is a divine being and i think that that's part of why it would it would be so impactful to him and what would make him emotional even is the idea that his his beliefs and his view of the world seem to seem to connect to a point where a divine being not just a divine being but just something something beyond right it exists the love somehow. that moves the sun and other stars yes that's there's something but but the inability to concretely say what it is and what that means for for me or for him i think is what is what's scary and i think that that goes back to his first lecture where he says finally that he's afraid that he does so um this is why this is why i think that it's appropriate i would say if we understand existentialism correctly from his perspective, why it's appropriate to for him to say that he is an existentialist. And hopefully I want to articulate, you know, why is this exactly an existentialist stance? So Flannery O'Connor said, in a good man is hard to find, 
if Christ did what he did, you have no choice but to, but to give up everything you have and follow him if what he says is true. And what yeah. if, if what he said is not true, then you have no choice but to do violence to your neighbor or some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. So it's either give up everything you have and follow Christ or nihilism. So to make meaning out of nothingness, right, can be existentialism, but not necessarily. Now, I had a professor tell me a story of he had a friend who read the Brothers Kar- two friends who read the Brothers Karamazov. And one of them oh. read Brothers, Brothers Karamazov and became a Christian. And the other one read Brothers Karamazov and became an atheist. So the same book, you come to two different conclusions. But mm-hmm. why Peterson is an existentialist is because he looks at this from a psychological perspective. And I could be living my whole life being a church-going attendee, saying that I believe in God, and be living a completely double life. I could be schizophrenic, right? And maybe I have to confront that. I have to realize that my whole life I've been saying I believe in God, but this is the reality, and I haven't been living with like that. And so now I have an existential crisis. Do I actually believe in God, right? And it's, it, it's individual, it's a crisis of existence, and it's and it is some and to some extent in your head. So, that, that's the Pilgrim's Progress, right? In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, Christian is the story of the Christian, and Christian has a burden, and he's the only one who has the burden. Why? Because he's been reading the text. He's been reading the holy text. The text tells him that he's destined for destruction, and. Because he read it, the burden, the burden like springs out of that. And it's like, did the burden come on him because he read the text or did the text create the burden? And if this is the story of every human being, then why doesn't his wife and family not have the burden? I mean, it's a weird picture, right? This is everyone's story and he's the only one who has it. Why? Because he read the text and they don't. So it's just like, you know, you go into a room and, you know, you could live your whole life and not knowing that the door frame is crooked or something. And then somebody points it out to you and you see it's crooked. And now, like, bam, you're conscious. You're more conscious than you were before. And now you cannot see it. And now you're burdened with that. And you have to live with seeing that crooked door frame. And it's going to bother you until you do something about it. And well, that's pilgrims. That's Christian's problem. And in order to solve that problem, he has to go on a pilgrimage. I think that's part. I think that may be part of what Peterson is saying. Yeah. The idea that the whole concept of a noble savage, the whole idea that you there, there is a grace that is extended to you when you are ignorant when you don't know, when you don't have as many gifts uh, given to you as maybe someone else does, but that um, the more the more that you have those gifts, the more that is required of you. Which reminds me of the parable of the talents where um, Jesus tells the story that there's the, the master who gives uh, five talents to one servant and then two talents to another servant and then one talent to another servant and he leaves and one of them goes and with the five talents earns five more and then the one who has two talents he goes and he earns two more and then the one who has the one talent is afraid and so he buries it and then the master comes back and to the to the man who now has ten talents and to the man who has four talents to both of them he gives the exact same answer which is you know, well done, you're a good and faithful servant, and enter into the joy of your master. And the one who buried the one talent, uh, he he doesn't get such a good response. <laughs> um, and then the whole parable ends with the injunction that um, anyone of who, to whom much is given, much will be required. And he who does not have even what he has will be taken away. Anyway, so the whole idea 
that just by knowing, by having gifts given to you, by encountering the text, like you were saying, uh, that that's what gives you a responsibility, which really brings us back to circling back to the 12 rules for life. That's the whole thing about the rules. That's the thing about the philosophy is that you have a responsibility. The fact that you have been given the gift of being means that you are responsible for your life and that you are responsible to face suffering and to tell the truth and to take care of yourself and to treat yourself and others with respect and to uh, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. That all of those things are things you have a responsibility to do because you have been given a talent, which is the gift of being. A beautiful conclusion. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week or two weeks from now. See you at some point. (laughs) You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or email us at unreliablenarratorstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com and let us know what piece on the Stoa Mars Hill list you would like to hear discussed next. This podcast was produced by Raymond Docopil and Sophie Klomperens. Our guest speaker was Trinity Klomperens, and our theme music was No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Marvel's 2021 miniseries, WandaVision. <gasps> really? Oh, wait, I love that show. <laughs> I want to be on it. Please let me be on it. <laughs> okay. Well... We'll see you again soon. Until then, friends, stand up straight with your shoulders back. I know you can see that the effect is that the intellectual idol of millions of people is punting on the most important question in the world. It is a question of literal metaphysical truth before this question of psychology. Peterson has said that he behaves as if God exists, but he lectures as if he doesn't. It would be helpful for his fans and himself if he addressed the heart of the West crisis and meaning. God, yes or no. Why not take on this question of the existence of God? Because it's not something to reduce to a soundbite. But your lectures are two hours long. This is true, but when you're talking about the most important questions that people have ever asked, then two hours isn't very long.